Section 3 of Part 2 of Religious Affections. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matthew James Gray. MJGray.id.au. Religious Affections by Jonathan Edwards. Section 3 of Part 2. 7. Persons having religious affections of many kinds, accompanying one another, is not sufficient to determine whether they have any gracious affections or no. Though false religion is wont to be maimed and monstrous, and not to have that entireness and symmetry of parts which is to be seen in true religion, yet there may be a great variety of false affections together that may resemble gracious affections. It is evident that there are counterfeits of all kinds of gracious affections, as of love to God and love to the brethren, as has been just now observed, so of godly sorrow for sin, as in Pharaoh, Saul, and Ahab, and the children of Israel in the wilderness, Exodus chapter 9 verse 27, 1 Samuel chapter 24 verses 16 and 17, and chapter 31 verse 21, 1 Kings chapter 21 verse 27, Numbers, chapter 14, verses 39 and 40. And the fear of God, as in the Samaritans, who feared the Lord, and served their own gods at the same time. 2 Kings, chapter 17, verses 32 and 33. And those enemies of God we read of, Psalm 66, verse 3, who, through the greatness of God's power, submit themselves to Him, or, as it is in the Hebrew, lie unto him, i.e., yield a counterfeit reverence and submission, so of a gracious gratitude, as in the children of Israel, who sang God's praise at the Red Sea, Psalm 106, verse 12, and Naaman, the Syrian, after his miraculous cure of his leprosy, 2 Kings, chapter 5, verse 15, etc. So of spiritual joy, as in the stony ground hearers, Matthew chapter 13 verse 20, and particularly many of John the Baptist's hearers, John chapter 5 verse 35. So of zeal, as in Jehu, 2 Kings chapter 10 verse 16, and in Paul before his conversion, Galatians chapter 1 verse 14, Philippians chapter 3 verse 6, and the unbelieving Jews, Acts chapter 22 verse 3, Romans chapter 10 verse 2. So graceless persons, may have earnest religious desires, which may be like Balaam's desires, which he expresses under an extraordinary view that he had of the happy state of God's people, as distinguished from all the rest of the world. Numbers chapter 23, verses 9 and 10. They may also have a strong hope of eternal life, as the Pharisees had. And as men, while in a state of nature, are capable of a resemblance of all kinds of religious affections, so nothing hinders but that they may have many of them together. And what appears in fact does abundantly evince that it is very often so indeed. It seems commonly to be so that when false affections are raised high, many false affections attend each other. The multitude that attended Christ into Jerusalem after that great miracle of raising Lazarus, 
seem to have been moved with many religious affections at once and all in a high degree they seem to have been filled with admiration and there was a show of a high affection of love and also of a great degree of reverence in their laying their garments on the ground for christ to tread upon and also of great gratitude to him for the great and good works he had wrought praising him with loud voices for his salvation and earnest desires of the coming of god's kingdom which they supposed jesus was now about to set up and showed great hopes and raised expectations of it expecting it would immediately appear and hence were filled with joy by which they were so animated in their acclamations as to make the whole city ring with the noise of them and appeared great in their zeal and forwardness to attend jesus and assist him without further delay now in the time of the great feast of the passover to set up his kingdom and it is easy from nature and the nature of the affections to give an account why when one affection is raised very high that it should excite others especially if the affection which is raised high be that of counterfeit love as it was in the multitude who cried hosanna this will naturally draw many other affections after it for as was observed before love is the chief of the affections and as it were the fountain of them let us suppose a person who has been for some time in great exercise and terror through fear of hell and his heart weakened with distress and dreadful apprehensions and upon the brink of despair and is all at once delivered by being firmly made to believe through some delusion of satan that god has pardoned him and accepts him as the object of his dear love and promises him eternal life as suppose through some vision or strong idea or imagination suddenly excited in him of a person with a beautiful countenance smiling on him and with arms open and with blood dropping down which the person conceives to be christ without any other enlightening of the understanding to give a view of the spiritual divine excellency of christ and his fullness and of the way of salvation revealed in the gospel or perhaps by some voice or words coming as if they were spoken to him such as these son be of good cheer thy sins be forgiven thee or fear not it is the father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom which he takes to be immediately spoken by god to him though there was no preceding acceptance of christ or closing of the heart with him i say if we should suppose such a case what various passions would naturally crowd at once or one after another into such a person's mind it is easy to be accounted for from mere principles of nature that a person's heart on such an occasion should be raised up to the skies with transports of joy and be filled with fervent affection to that imaginary god or redeemer who he supposes has thus rescued him from the jaws of such dreadful destruction that his soul was so amazed with the fears of and has received him with such endearment as a peculiar favourite and that now he should be filled with admiration and gratitude and his mouth should be opened and be full of talk about what he has experienced and that for a while he should think and speak of scarce anything else 
and should seem to magnify that God who has done so much for him, and call upon others to rejoice with him, and appear with a cheerful countenance, and talk with a loud voice. And however, before his deliverance, he was full of quarrelings against the justice of God, that now it should be easy for him to submit to God, and own his unworthiness, and cry out against himself, and appear to be very humble before God, and lie at his feet as tame as a lamb, and that he should now confess his unworthiness and cry out, Why me? Why me? Like Saul, who when Samuel told him that God had appointed him to be the king, makes answer, Am I not a Benjaminite, of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Wherefore, then, speakest thou so to me? Much in the language of David, the true saint, 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verse 18, Who am I, and what is my father's house, that thou hast brought me hitherto? Nor is it to be wondered at, that now he should delight to be with them who acknowledge and applaud his happy circumstances, and should love all such as esteem and admire him and what he has experienced, and have violent zeal against all such as would make nothing of such things, and be disposed openly to separate, and as it were to proclaim war with all who be not of his party, and should now glory in his sufferings, and be very much for condemning and censoring all who seem to doubt, or make any difficulty of these things. And while the warmth of his affections lasts, should be mighty forward to take pains and deny himself, to promote the interests of the party who he imagines favours such things, and seem earnestly desirous to increase the number of them, as the Pharisees compassed sea and land to make one proselyte. And so I might go on and mention many other things, which will naturally arise in such circumstances. He must have but slightly considered human nature, who thinks such things as these cannot arise in this manner, without any supernatural interposition of divine power. As from true divine love flow all Christian affections, so from a counterfeit love in like manner naturally flow other false affections. In both cases, love is the fountain, and the other affections are the streams. The various faculties, principles, and affections of the human nature are, as it were, many channels from one fountain. If there be sweet water in the fountain, sweet water will from thence flow out into those various channels. But if the water in the fountain be poisonous, then poisonous streams will also flow out into all those channels, so that the channels and streams will be alike, corresponding one with another, but the great difference will lie in the nature of the water. Or, Man's nature may be compared to a tree with many branches, coming from one root. If the sap in the root be good, there will also be good sap distributed throughout the branches, and the fruit that is brought forth will be good and wholesome. But if the sap in the root and stock be poisonous, so it will be in many branches, as in the other case, and the fruit will be deadly. The tree in both cases may be alike, there may be an exact resemblance in shape, but the difference is found only in eating the fruit. It is thus, in some measure at least, oftentimes between saints and hypocrites. There is sometimes a very great similitude between true and false experiences in their appearance, 
and what is expressed and related by the subjects of them. And the difference between them is much like the difference between the dreams of Pharaoh's chief butler and baker. They seemed to be much alike, insomuch that when Joseph interpreted the chief butler's dream that he should be delivered from his imprisonment and restored to the king's favour and his honourable office in the palace, the chief baker had raised hopes and expectations and told his dream also. But he was woefully disappointed. And though his dream was so much like the happy and well-boding dream of his companion, yet it was quite contrary in its issue. 8. Nothing can certainly be determined concerning the nature of the affections by this, that comforts and joys seem to follow awakenings and convictions of conscience in a certain order. Many persons seem to be prejudiced against affections and experiences that come in such a method, as has been much insisted on by many divines. First, such awakenings, fears, and awful apprehensions, followed with such legal humblings, in a sense of total sinfulness and helplessness, and then such and such light and comfort. They look upon all such schemes, laying down such methods and steps, to be of men's devising, and particularly if high affections of joy follow great distress and terror, it is made by many an argument against those affections. But such prejudices and objections are without reason or scripture. Surely it cannot be unreasonable to suppose that, before God delivers persons from a state of sin and exposedness to eternal destruction, he should give them some considerable sense of the evil he delivers from, that they may be delivered sensibly and understand their own salvation and know something of what God does for them. As men that are saved are in two exceeding different states, first a state of condemnation, and then in a state of justification and blessedness, and as God, in the work of the salvation of mankind, deals with them suitably to their intelligent, rational nature, so it seems reasonable and agreeable to God's wisdom that men who are saved should be in these two states sensibly. First, that they should, sensibly to themselves, be in a state of condemnation, and so in a state of woeful calamity and dreadful misery, and so afterwards in a state of deliverance and happiness, and that they should be first sensible of their absolute extreme necessity, and afterwards of Christ's sufficiency and God's mercy through him. And that it is God's manner of dealing with men to lead them into a wilderness before he speaks comfortably to them, and so to order it, that they shall be brought into distress and made to see their own helplessness and absolute dependence on his power and grace before he appears to work any great deliverance for them is abundantly manifest by the scripture then is god wont to repent himself for his professing people when their strength is gone and there is none shut up or left and when they are brought to see that their false gods cannot help them and that the rock in whom they trusted is vain. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 36 and 37. Before God delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt, they were prepared for it by being made to see that they were in an evil case and to cry unto God because of their hard bondage. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 and chapter 5, verse 19. 
And before God wrought that great deliverance for them at the Red Sea, they were brought into great distress. The wilderness had shut them in. They could not turn to the right hand nor the left. And the Red Sea was before them, and the great Egyptian host behind. And they were brought to see that they could do nothing to help themselves, and that if God did not help them, they should be immediately swallowed up. And then God appeared and turned their cries into songs. So before they were brought to their rest, and to enjoy the milk and honey of Canaan, God led them through a great and terrible wilderness, that he might humble them and teach them what was in their heart, and so do them good in their latter end. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verses 2 and 16. The woman that had the issue of blood twelve years was not delivered, until she had first spent all her living on earthly physicians and could not be healed of any, and so was left helpless, having no more money to spend. And then she came to the great physician, without any money or price, and was healed by him. Luke chapter 8, verse 43 and 44. Before Christ would answer the request of the woman of Canaan, he first seemed utterly to deny her and humbled her, and brought her to own herself worthy to be called a dog. And then he showed her mercy, and received her as a dear child. Matthew chapter 15 verse 22, etc. The Apostle Paul, before a remarkable deliverance, was pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that he despaired even of life, but had the sentence of death in himself, that he might not trust in himself, but in God that raiseth the dead. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 8, 9 and 10 There was first a great tempest, and the ship was covered with the waves, and just ready to sink. Find the disciples were brought to cry to Jesus, Lord, save us, we perish. And then the winds and seas were rebuked, and there was a great calm. Matthew chapter 8 verses 24, 25 and 26 The leper, before he is cleansed, must have his mouth stopped by covering on his upper lip, and was to acknowledge his great misery and utter uncleanness by rending his clothes and crying, Unclean, unclean. Leviticus chapter 13, verse 45. And backsliding Israel, before God heals them, are brought to acknowledge that they have sinned and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, and to see that they lie down in their shame and that confusion covers them, and that in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitude of mountains, and that God only can save them. Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 23, 24, and 25. Joseph, who was sold by his brethren, and therein was a type of Christ, brings his brethren into great perplexity and distress, and brings them to reflect on their sin, and to say, we are verily guilty, and at last to resign up themselves entirely into his hands for bondmen, and then reveals himself to them as their brother and their saviour. And if we consider those extraordinary manifestations which God made of himself to saints of old, we shall find that he commonly first manifested himself in a way which was terrible, and then by those things that were comfortable. So it was with Abraham. First, a horror of great darkness fell upon him, 
and then god revealed himself to him in sweet promises genesis chapter 15 verses 12 and 13 so it was with moses at mount sinai first god appeared to him in all the terrors of his dreadful majesty so that moses said i exceedingly fear and quake and then he made all his goodness to pass before him and proclaimed his name the lord god gracious and merciful etc so it was with elijah first there is a stormy wind and earthquakes and devouring fire and then a still small sweet voice one kings chapter nineteen so it was with daniel he first saw christ's countenance as lightning that terrified him and caused him to faint away and then he is strengthened and refreshed with such comfortable words as these o daniel a man greatly beloved daniel chapter ten so it was with the apostle john revelation chapter one and there is an analogy observable in god's dispensations and deliverances which he works for his people and the manifestations which he makes of himself to them both ordinary and extraordinary but there are many things in scripture which do more directly show that this is god's ordinary manner in working salvation for the souls of men and in the manifestations god makes of himself and of his mercy in christ in the ordinary works of his grace on the hearts of sinners the servant who owed his prince ten thousand talents is first held to his debt and the king pronounces sentence of condemnation upon him and commands him to be sold and his wife and children and payment to be made and thus he humbles him and brings him to own the as whole of the debt to be just and then forgives him all the prodigal son spends all he has and is brought to see himself in extreme circumstances and to humble himself and own his unworthiness before he is relieved and feasted by his father luke chapter 15 old inveterate wounds must be searched to the bottom in order to healing and the scripture compares sin the wound of the soul to this and speaks of healing this wound without thus searching of it as vain and deceitful jeremiah chapter 7 verse 11 christ in the work of his grace on the hearts of men is compared to rain on the new mown grass grass that is cut down with a scythe psalm 72 verse 6 representing his refreshing comforting influences on the wounded spirit our first parents after they had sinned were first terrified with god's majesty and justice and had their sin with its aggravations set before them by their judge before they were relieved by the promise of the seed of the woman christians are spoken of as those that have fled for refuge to lay hold on the hope set before them hebrews chapter 6 verse 18 which representation implies great fear and sense of danger proceeding to the like purpose christ is called a hiding place from the wind and a covert from the tempest and as rivers of water in a dry place and as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land isaiah chapter 32 at the beginning and it seems to be the natural import of the word gospel glad tidings that it is news of deliverance and salvation after great fear and distress there is also reason to suppose that god deals with particular believers as he dealt with his church 
which he first made to hear his voice in the law, with terrible thunders and lightning, and kept her under that schoolmaster to prepare her for Christ, and then comforted her with the joyful sound of the gospel from Mount Zion. So likewise John the Baptist came to prepare the way for Christ, and prepare men's hearts for his reception, by showing them their sins, and by bringing the self-righteous Jews off from their own righteousness, telling them that they were a generation of vipers, and showing them their danger of the wrath to come, telling them that the axe was laid at the root of the trees, etc. And if it be indeed God's manner, as I think the foregoing considerations show that it undoubtedly is, before he gives men the comfort of a deliverance from their sin and misery, to give them a considerable sense of the greatness and dreadfulness of those evils, and their extreme wretchedness by reason of them, surely it is not unreasonable to suppose that persons, at least oftentimes, while under these views, should have great distresses and terrible apprehensions of mind, especially if it be considered what these evils are that they have a view of, which are no other than great and manifold sins against the infinite majesty of the great Jehovah and the suffering of the fierceness of his wrath to all eternity. And the more so still, when we have many plain instances in Scripture of persons that have actually been brought into great distress by such convictions before they have received saving consolations, as the multitude of Jerusalem, who were pricked in their heart, and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And the apostle Paul, who trembled and was astonished before he was comforted, and the jailer, when he called for a light, and sprang in, and came trembling, and fell down before Paul and Silas, and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? From these things it appears to be very unreasonable in professing Christians to make this an objection against the truth and spiritual nature of the comfortable and joyful affections which any have, that they follow such awful apprehensions and distresses, as have been mentioned. And, on the other hand, it is no evidence that comforts and joys are right because they succeed great terrors and the amazing fears of hell. This seems to be what some persons lay a great weight upon, esteeming great terrors and evidence of the great work of the law as wrought on the heart, well preparing the way for solid comfort, not considering that terror and a conviction of conscience are different things. For though convictions of conscience do often cause terror, yet they do not consist in it, and terrors do often arise from other causes. Convictions of conscience, through the influences of God's Spirit, consist in conviction of sinfulness of heart and practices, and of the dreadfulness of sins as committed against a God of terrible majesty, infinite holiness and hatred of sin, and strict justice in punishing of it. But there are some persons that have frightful apprehensions of hell, a dreadful pit ready to swallow them up, and flames just ready to lay hold of them, and devils around them ready to seize them, who at the same time seem to have very little proper enlightenings of conscience really convincing them of their sinfulness of heart and life. The devil, if permitted, can terrify men as well as the Spirit of God. It is a work natural to him and he has many ways of doing it in a manner tending to no good. He may exceedingly affright persons 
by impressing on them images and ideas of many external things, of a countenance frowning, a sword drawn, black clouds of vengeance, words of an awful doom pronounced, hell gaping, devils coming, and the like, not to convince persons of things that are true and revealed in the word of God, but to lead them to vain and groundless determinations, as that their day is past, that they are reprobated, that God is implacable, that he has come to a resolution immediately to cut them off, etc. And the terrors which some persons have are very much owing to the particular constitution and temper they are of. Nothing is more manifest than that some persons are of such a temper and frame that their imaginations are more strongly impressed with everything they are affected with than others. And the impression on the imagination reacts on the affection and raises that still higher. And so affection and imagination act reciprocally, one on another, till their affection is raised to a vast height and the person is swallowed up and loses as possession of himself. And some speak of a great sight they have of their wickedness, who really, when the matter comes to be well examined into and thoroughly weighted, are found to have little or no convictions of conscience. They tell of a dreadful hard heart, and how their heart lies like a stone, when truly they have none of those things in their minds or thoughts, wherein the hardness of men's heart does really consist. They tell of a dreadful load and sink of sin, a heap of black and loathsome filthiness within them, when, if the matter be carefully inquired into, they have not in view anything wherein the corruption of nature does truly consist, nor have they any thought of any particular thing wherein their hearts are sinfully defective, or fall short of what ought to be in them, or any exercises at all of corruption in them. And many think also they have great convictions of their actual sins, who truly have none. They tell how their sins are set in order before them. They see them stand encompassing them round in a row with a dreadful, frightful appearance, when really they have not so much as one of the sins they have been guilty of in the course of their lives coming into view that they are affected with the aggravations of. And if persons have had great terrors, which really have been from the awakening and convincing influences of the Spirit of God, it doth not thence follow that their terrors must needs issue in true comfort. The unmortified corruption of the heart may quench the Spirit of God, after he has been striving, by leading men to presumptuous and self-exalting hopes and joys, as well as otherwise. It is not every woman who is really in travail that brings forth a real child, and it may be a monstrous production without anything of the form or properties of human nature belonging to it. Pharaoh's chief baker, after he had lain in the dungeon with Joseph, had a vision that raised his hopes, and he was lifted out of the dungeon, as well as the chief butler, but it was to be hanged. But if comforts and joys do not only come after great terrors and awakenings, but there be an appearance of such preparatory convictions and humiliations, and brought about very distinctly by such steps, and in such a method as has frequently been observable in true converts, this is no certain sign that the light and comforts which follow are true and saving, and for these following reasons. First, as the devil can counterfeit all the saving operations and graces of the Spirit of God, so he can counterfeit those operations that are preparatory to grace. If Satan can 
counterfeit those effects of God's Spirit, which are special, divine, and sanctifying, so that there shall be a very great resemblance in all that can be observed by others, much more easily may he imitate those works of God's Spirit which are common, and which men, while they are yet his own children, are the subjects of. These works are in no wise so much above him as the other. There are no works of God that are so high and divine and above the powers of nature and out of reach of the power of all creatures as those works of his spirit whereby he forms the creature in his own image and makes it to be a partaker of the divine nature. But if the devil can be the author of such resemblances of these as have been spoken of, Without doubt he may of those that are of an infinitely inferior kind. And it is abundantly evident, in fact, that there are false humiliations and false submissions, as well as false comforts. How far was Saul brought, though a very wicked man, and of a haughty spirit, when he, though a great king, was brought, in conviction of his sin, as it were, to fall down, all in tears, weeping aloud, before David his own subject, and one that he had for a long time mortally hated and openly treated as an enemy, and condemn himself before him, crying out, Thou art more righteous than I, for thou hast rewarded me good, whereas I have rewarded thee evil. And at another time, I have sinned, I have played the fool, I have erred exceedingly, 1 Samuel chapter 24 verses 16 and 17 and chapter 26 verse 21. And yet Saul seems then to have had very little of the influences of the Spirit of God, it being after God's Spirit had departed from him and given him up, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. And if this proud monarch, in a pang of affection, was brought to humble himself so low before a subject that he hated, and still continued an enemy to, there doubtless may be appearances of great conviction and humiliation in men before God, while they yet remain enemies to him, and though they finally continue so. There is often times in men who are terrified through fears of hell, a great appearance of their being brought off from their own righteousness, when they are not brought off from it in all ways, although they are in many ways that are more plain and visible. They have only exchanged some ways of trusting in their own righteousness for others that are more secret and subtle. Oftentimes a great degree of discouragement as to many things they used to depend upon is taken for humiliation, that is called a submission to God, which is no absolute submission, but has some secret bargain in it, that it is hard to discover. Secondly, if the operations and effects of the Spirit of God in the convictions and comforts of true converts may be sophisticated, then the order of them may be imitated. If Satan can imitate the things themselves, he may easily put them one after another, in such a certain order. If the devil can make A, B, and C, it is as easy for him to put A first, and B next, and C next, as to range item in a contrary order. The nature of divine things is harder for the devil to imitate than their order. He cannot exactly imitate divine operations in their nature, though his counterfeits may be very much like them in external appearance. 
but it can exactly imitate their order. When counterfeits are made, there is no divine power needful in order to the placing one of them first and another last, and therefore no order or method of operations and experiences is any certain sign of their divinity. That only is to be trusted to as a certain evidence of grace which Satan cannot do and which it is impossible should be brought to pass by any power short of divine. Thirdly, we have no certain rule to determine how far God's own spirit may go in those operations and convictions which in themselves are not spiritual and saving, and yet the person that is the subject of them never be converted, but fall short of salvation at last. There is no necessary connection in the nature of things between anything that a natural man may experience while in a state of nature and the saving grace of God's spirit. And if there be no connection in the nature of things, then there can be no known and certain connection at all, unless it be by divine revelation. But there is no revealed certain connection between a state of salvation and anything that a natural man can be the subject of before he believes in Christ. God has revealed no certain connection between salvation and any qualifications in men, but only grace and its fruits. And therefore, we do not find any legal convictions or comforts following these legal convictions in any certain method or order ever once mentioned in the scripture as certain signs of grace or things peculiar to the saints. Although we do find gracious operations and effects themselves so mentioned thousands of times, which should be enough with Christians who are willing to have the word of God rather than their own philosophy and experiences and conjectures as their sufficient and sure guide in things of this nature. Fourthly, experience does greatly confirm that persons seem to have convictions and comforts following one another in such a method and order as is frequently observable in true converts is no certain sign of grace. I appeal to all those ministers in this land who have had much occasion of dealing with souls in the late extraordinary season whether there have not been many who do not prove well that have given a fair account of their experiences and have seemed to be converted according to rule i.e. with convictions and affections succeeding distinctly and exactly in that order and method which has been ordinarily insisted on as the order of the operations of the Spirit of God in conversion. And as a seeming to have this distinctness as to steps and method is no certain sign that a person is converted, so a being without it is no evidence that a person is not converted. For though it might be made evident to a demonstration on Scripture principles that a sinner cannot be brought heartily to receive Christ as his Saviour, who is not convinced of his sin and misery, and of his own emptiness and helplessness, and his just desert of eternal condemnation, and that therefore such convictions must be some way implied in what is wrought in his soul, yet nothing proves it to be necessary that all those things which are implied or presupposed in an act of faith in Christ must be plainly and distinctly wrought in the soul, in so many successive and separate works of the Spirit, that shall be each one plain and manifest in all who are truly converted. On the contrary, 
as Mr. Shepherd observes, sometimes the change made in a saint at first work is like a confused chaos, so that the saints know not what to make of it. The manner of the spirits proceeding in them that are born of the spirit is very often exceeding mysterious and unsearchable. We, as it were, hear the sound of it, the effect of it is discernible, but no man can tell whence it came or whither it went, and it is oftentimes as difficult to know the way of the spirit in the new birth as in the first birth. Ecclesiastes chapter 11 verse 5 Thou knowest not what is the way of the spirit, or how the bones do grow in the womb of her that is with child. Even so thou knowest not the works of God that worketh all. The ingenerating of a principle of grace in the soul seems in scripture to be compared to the conceiving of Christ in the womb. Galatians chapter 4 verse 19. And therefore the church is called Christ's mother. Canticles chapter 3 verse 11. And so is every particular believer. Matthew chapter 12 verses 49 and 50. And the conception of Christ in the womb of the Blessed Virgin, by the power of the Holy Ghost, seems to be a designed resemblance of the conception of Christ in the soul of a believer, by the power of the same Holy Ghost. And we know not what is the way of the Spirit, nor how the bones do grow, either in the womb or heart that conceives this holy child. The new creature may use that language in Psalm 139, verse 14 and 15. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvellous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret. Concerning the generation of Christ, both in his person and also in the hearts of his people, it may be said, as in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 8, who can declare his generation? We know not the works of God that worketh all. It is the glory of God to conceal a thing. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 2. And to have his path, as it were, in the mighty waters, that his footsteps may not be known, and especially in the works of his Spirit on the hearts of men, which are the highest and chief of his works. And therefore it is said, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13, who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or being his counsellor, hath taught him? It is to be feared that some have gone too far towards directing the Spirit of the Lord, and marking out his footsteps for him, and limiting him to certain steps and methods. Experience plainly shows that God's Spirit is unsearchable and untraceable. In some of the best of Christians, in the method of his operations, in their conversion, nor does the Spirit of God proceed discernibly in the steps of a particular established scheme, one half so often as is imagined. A scheme of what is necessary, and according to a rule already received and established by common opinion, has a vast, though to many a very insensible, influence in forming persons' notions of the steps and method of their own experiences. I know very well what their way is for I have had much opportunity to observe it. Very often, at first, their experiences appear like a confused chaos, as Mr. Shepherd expresses it. But then those passages of their experience are picked out that have most of the appearance of such particular steps that are insisted on, and these are dwelt upon in the thoughts, and these are told of from time to time in the relation they give. 
These parts grow brighter and brighter in their view, and others, being neglected, grow more and more obscure. And what they have experienced is insensibly strained to bring all to an exact conformity to the scheme that is established. And it becomes natural for ministers, who have to deal with them and direct them that insist upon distinctness and clearness of method, to do so too. But yet there has been so much to be seen of the operations of the Spirit of God of late, that they who have had much to do with souls, and are not blinded with a sevenfold veil of prejudice, must know that the Spirit is so exceeding various in the manner of his operating, that in many cases it is impossible to trace him or find out his way. What we have principally to do with, in our inquiries into our own state, or directions we give to others, is the nature of the effect that God has brought to pass in the soul. As to the steps which the Spirit of God took to bring that effect to pass, we may leave them to Him. We are often in Scripture expressly directed to try ourselves by the nature of the fruits of the Spirit, but nowhere by the Spirit's method of producing them. Many do greatly err in their notions of a clear work of conversion, calling that a clear work where the successive steps of influence and method of experience are clear, whereas that indeed is the clearest work, not where the order of doing is clearest, but where the spiritual and divine nature of the work done, an effect wrought, is most clear. End of section 3 of part 2 Recording by Matthew James Gray mjgray.id.au